You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Hey there, today we're talking about the sci-fi anthology series Black Mirror. Now I realize I'm probably a bit behind the times here. This show's popularity seems to have come and went. But it's still worth talking about because this is the kind of thing I love to cover on this show. A show that explores politics and makes social commentary in a sci-fi setting and using sci-fi tropes. It is sort of a modern British Twilight Zone. And if I'm doing a show called Social Science Fiction, it's a show I had to talk about at some point. So let's get to it. Black Mirror is again an anthology series, and if you haven't checked it out, it's worth looking into. It premiered on British TV in 2011, and the premise is essentially each episode is a standalone story. A lot of these stories have the same actors, but they're always playing different characters with totally new plot lines, totally new premises. Although we'll see a lot of ideas revisited, and we'll see stories sometimes reference older stories, but each one is sort of a standalone story. And Black Mirror became popular in Britain after it premiered and really received much wider worldwide notice when Netflix picked it up at the end of 2014 and then started producing new episodes for the show on its own beginning in 2016. And around this time, around 2014 into 2015, 2016, that's when Black Mirror really had its big surge of popularity. A lot of people talking about it, and I suspect this was at least in part due to the real shock value of the first episode of the series. And if you've seen it before, you know what I'm talking about, the episode involving the pig, which I'll probably talk about later. But that episode was so out there and shocking that it really did get people's attention and people started talking about the show and paying attention to it. And since then, I think a lot of people tuned in for the first couple seasons produced by Netflix and its popularity has really sort of waned since then. But I think people are still interested in it. People still talk about it. It still comes up in conversation sometimes. And it's likely we are going to get more of Black Mirror or something like it in the future. Maybe not necessarily titled Black Mirror. I understand that there's legal and intellectual property stuff going on. The original creators of the show have left the company and they don't own it anymore, but they are contracted to Netflix to make more stuff for them. So we may not get more official Black Mirror, but we're likely in the next couple of years to get more stuff like it. And so today I just want to talk about what we've seen of Black Mirror so far, what I like about it, what I don't like about it, some favorite episodes, and what kind of political ideas we get out of it. So let's get going. And by the way, spoiler warning for Black Mirror in general, all the episodes I talk about, I'm going to give at least the basics of the plot. I'll put in the show notes which episodes I talk about when, so you can avoid spoilers if you want. But I will be spoiling the main plot lines of all of these episodes, pretty much. So, Black Mirror in general. I've always had really mixed feelings about the show. In general, my take is it's a show with episodes that always have interesting premises and really cool ideas, but when it comes to the execution, it's always been really hit or miss for me. Episodes are either really solid or really disappointing. Some episodes are great, and I'll wrap up talking about some of the ones I really liked, but I think more often than not, they ultimately fall flat for me, and for a lot of different reasons. And I realize this is petty for a show like this, but I but I have to say, I think some episodes for me just rely too much on fridge logic, and it ends up taking me out of the story. And if you're not familiar with the term, fridge logic is when the plot of a story makes sense, the logic of it makes sense when you're 
watching and in the middle of it and into it and concentrating on it. But when you have a minute away from the show and are just thinking back about it, as in when you go to the fridge and take a break from the show, suddenly when you step away from it, all of a sudden little plot holes start to pop up and you realize, oh wait, that didn't make sense because how did he know about that and how did that person get there and, and so on. That's fridge logic. It makes sense until you get up to go to the fridge. And so many of these episodes have abundant fridge logic. The first one that comes to my mind for me is the first season episode, 15 Million Merits. A great example of cool premise that for me doesn't really hold up. And if you're not familiar, this is the episode set in a weird, creepy dystopia where people are constantly surrounded by TV screens. They're just kind of brainwashed and watch media all day. It's a very brave new world type future. People sort of turn off their brains and just absorb the media that's being fed to them. And most people spend their days pedaling these stationary bikes that apparently produce the electricity that the society runs on while a handful of people work basically in media. It seems like these are the elites of society, the people that host TV shows and perform. And the whole point of the episode is one character kind of waking up, becoming disenchanted with the whole system and trying in his small way to rebel against it. And then it ends on sort of a very pessimistic negative note. But the fridge logic for me is once I step away from the episode, I stop and think for a minute, this crazy, super technologically advanced dystopia, apparently the only way they can produce electricity is having people ride stationary bikes. This, this society hasn't figured out fusion power or something. Rather, you can't have people working in power plants. You've just got them all riding stationary bikes all day. Can't they be doing something more useful? And I realize this is a petty point. The, the point of the episode is about how people are sort of brainwashed by media. But still, it's that kind of thing that sometimes takes me out of episodes when you start with a cool premise and then you really don't build on it in a believable way. But that's just some episodes. And again, I acknowledge that's petty. I, I think a more fair criticism I have for a lot of the show in general is it's a show that clearly is always interested in social commentary, but it's not always clear exactly what the message, what the commentary is supposed to be. For a lot of episodes, it seems like the meaning, the message is really muddled or confused or contradicted by other parts of the episode. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with ambiguity in a show. If you want to do an episode where the message is ambiguous, where you're supposed to be left going, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel about this, that's great. That can be cool, but oftentimes it doesn't seem like that's what the writers are going for. It seems like the writers aren't going for ambiguity. It seems like the writers feel strongly about something and want you to feel strongly about something, but it's just sometimes not clear exactly what they want you to feel strongly about. And here I'm thinking of a couple episodes. There's the first season episode, The Entire History of You, wherein we get a future where most people have this little implant in their brains that basically records everything they see and hear. And so everybody essentially has perfect memory. Anytime you want to remember something that happened, you just use a remote control to tap into this chip in your head and you can play back what was recorded and you can see a perfect recording of what happened. And the plot of the episode follows a guy as he gets into a fight with his wife and then become suspicious about her and her past relationship with another man and it ends with him becoming paranoid convinced she had an affair with this guy and he ends up destroying his relationship with her and losing his wife and his daughter and he's all alone and he ends up ripping this chip out of his head at the end and it seems like the message is this kind of technology the fact that we record everything in life the ability that we can recall everything that happens to us is a horrible thing it's good that we don't remember everything perfectly we should be able to let some things go 
ago. It's just going to make us paranoid and obsessive about the past. On the other hand, what we do find out at the end of the episode is that the guy's right. His wife did cheat on him. And so it's kind of, well, is this technology making you paranoid or not? You're not paranoid if you're right. So there's an episode where I come away from it with, yeah, it seems like this technology is bad. You don't want to be able to relive every moment of your life in perfect detail. But that's that last note is like, well, he did find out something that was true. It ends up seeming to kind of contradict itself to some degree. Another episode where I come away not knowing exactly how to feel or what the writer is getting at is the season two episode, Shut Up and Dance. And in this episode, we mostly follow a young kid, like 14, 15 years old, who accidentally downloads a computer virus onto his computer and through this virus allows hackers to get access to his camera and they record him masturbating to internet porn and they use that information to blackmail him and force him to go out and do a whole bunch of bad things. He participates in a bank robbery and what we find out is that all his accomplices who are taking part in this heist are also being blackmailed for things they did that hackers found out about and it ends with this kid and a man being forced to fight to the death and this kid ultimately survives which by the way another piece of fridge logic I realize we're probably not supposed to think about it but how did a 14 year old kid defeat a grown man in a fight to the death but putting that aside the whole episode you're feeling bad for this kid he's just being blackmailed because he got caught masturbating but then at the very end it's revealed this kid and the man he's fighting to the death were both looking at child porn and we also find out that one of his other accomplices was being blackmailed because he cheated on his wife or almost cheated on his wife someone else who was involved was caught sending private emails that were very offensive I think it's implied that there was racist stuff and that's what she's being blackmailed for and so at the end of the episode the hackers the blackmailers release all this information so even though everybody followed instructions and did what they were told to do the blackmailers still release all the information anyway and it's sort of implied that they were doing this just for fun and again you're left with who are we what is the message here what are, who are we supposed to be feeling sympathy for you're feeling sympathy for this kid all along and sympathy for all the other people who are being blackmailed then we find one of these guys is a pedophile he was looking at child porn so is this young kid although this kid is 14 I think a lot of us still feel sympathy for. We figure he's 14, he's possibly confused, he needs therapy, not punishment. And as for the other people cheating on your wife, sending racist messages, I think everybody's going to have their own standards. But the point is there's a huge range of immoral behavior ending at the one end with a grown man looking at child porn and at the other end people doing or saying offensive things and cheating on their spouse which ultimately hurts no one but their spouse. We get sort of this huge range of wrongful behavior and I left wondering like are we supposed to feel sympathy for the people who are being blackmailed are we supposed to view what happened to them as justice or are we supposed to fear the power the internet is giving people to hack into people's lives but if that's the message if it's fear these hackers these guys are bad they have ill intent then why make their victims so unsympathetic it's so ambiguous in a way that makes you wonder what was the writer trying to say here and meanwhile, while some are sort of ambiguous, some are just too on the nose in terms of their social commentary to the point where they might as well just during certain scenes have a big message flashing across the bottom of the screen, just political commentary, political commentary, political commentary. It's just so over the top and obvious to the point where it's no longer interesting. And I'm thinking of two season three episodes here. One is Nosedive, which is set in a future where, again, going back 
back to this kind of implant in the brain technology. Everybody has an implant or most people have an implant and it's sort of tied to their personal identity. And through these implants and through your phones, basically everybody can rate everybody else during every interpersonal interaction like Yelp or Uber style. Every interaction you have with a human being, at the end of it, you can both rate each other and give each other one star or five stars or whatever. So creepy in itself, clearly commentary on our rating culture, social media, how people are obsessed with their appearance and their social status on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and so on. And carrying it a step further, the scariness of what if we just carry this further into just every interaction offline in everyday life and carrying it another step further when we say, well, what if this was affecting your socioeconomic status? The main character of this episode is obsessed with getting a discount on rent at a upscale apartment complex and she's struggling to up her personal status rating because if you have a high enough rating you get a discount on rent at these nice apartments so your social status in this online setting can actually impact apparently what kind of jobs you can get where you can live and so on so a very scary idea but it's just so over the top in terms of the messaging. It gives us this scary premise, but then it's just so obvious what they're saying. Throughout the episode, this woman who is obsessed with upping her status experiences a series of borderline comedic incidents where she accidentally offends people and bad things happen to her and she ends up tanking her personal rating until it plummets to basically zero and then she gets arrested and finally sitting in prison concludes she doesn't care anymore and starts ranting and raving and having a fight with a person in Excel and she's clearly happy and free because I don't care anymore and it's I guess it's supposed to be a very cathartic moment very beautiful she's finally realized she doesn't need these things anymore but just it ends up being so on the nose with the message that it falls flat for me and further I just argue another point where there's a bit of fridge logic and confused messaging because clearly the point of the message is just give up on this stuff you don't need it you'll be happier without it But the message is also telling us in this specific setting, clearly you do need these things. If you want to live a successful life, if you want to have a good home, drive a nice car, anything like that, you need to worry about your status. So they give us a future where this does affect your real world life now, but still tells us, oh, these things don't matter. It's just online. Well, clearly it's not in this future, in this creepy future. In fact, you should seemingly worry about these things to some degree. It will affect your real life. But anyway, that's confusing messaging and clearly a case of kind of showing us one thing and telling us something else. But the larger point is it's very on the nose with what the episode is trying to say. And it sort of takes me out of the story. The other episode I'm thinking of that really captures this, that, you know, goes a little bit too hard on the nose is the other season three episode, Men Against Fire. And in this episode, what we get is, it seems like it's going to be a straight-up sci-fi story, near-future soldiers fighting mutant humanoid monsters. And the futuristic element is, of course, these weird mutants. And also that all the soldiers have an implant in the brain. Again, another implant episode. They have an implant in the brain that's supposed to enhance their senses and record location data and help planning and logistics for military operations and so on. And then the whole plot of the episode is we discover through the main character that, in fact, there are no mutant monsters. The people these soldiers are killing are just regular human beings. These implants in their brains aren't enhancing their senses. They're actually distorting what they see. So they're turning these humans in their minds into these monsters to dehumanize them, to make it possible for these soldiers to kill them. And we find out what the soldiers are doing is they're carrying out genocide against a race of people that this future society has decided are 
genetically inferior. So we get a whole message about dehumanization of people and how genocide occurs. But again, it's just so on the nose and so on the nose that it becomes predictable. I remember watching this episode and literally five minutes in, as soon as we got the, okay, there are mutants and I heard implant, I just called it immediately, not to toot my own horn, but I called this episode literally minutes into it because it was just so obvious what they were going for in this episode. And just being that blunt and that over-the-top obvious with such an important, sensitive subject like genocide was really disappointing. And I'm, I'm going to rant about this more at the end of the episode. I had a lot of issues with this episode in particular. But another example for now of an episode that's just too on the nose in terms of its commentary. And so that's a lot of episodes of the show for me. They're either too ambiguous, too vague about what they're trying to say, or too on the nose with it. It's very rare that you get an episode that can deliver a clear message but with some subtlety or nuance a lot of them fall flat one way or the other another criticism i have for a lot of episodes apart from the messaging is so many episodes really don't in my mind take advantage of the interesting ideas and premises they establish like the episode leads off with a really interesting setup that raises all kinds of interesting political and social questions that i would love to see explored and then the episode really doesn't do any of that. And it just gives us a, a much more generic story in an interesting setting. And here for me, the episode that encapsulates this is the season three episode, San Junipero. And I realize I'm walking into a fight here because this is so many people's favorite episode. I know people loved this one. And of course, how can you not love the episode? It's a very sweet lesbian love story with likable characters and a positive, uplifting message and a happy ending. So I realize people love it. But for me, it's not bad for what it is, but it's bad for what it isn't, for what it could have been, for all the missed opportunities. And in this case, I was so interested and intrigued by the idea in this episode of people being able to live forever by uploading their brains basically into a big computer server. Which, by the way, is the premise of the episode. We have two people meeting, falling in love, and then we find they're actually in a virtual world. They're both either elderly or disabled in the real world, and they are periodically allowed to upload their brains to this virtual world, and the plan is when they die, they're going to go there permanently. And we find that all the other people inhabiting this world are also dead, or some are visiting temporarily, but most of them are also dead. And that this is what happens in this future. When you die, you have the option to be uploaded to this virtual world. And so really interesting premise that raised a lot of questions that I wanted to explore. And what we get is just a fairly generic love story where, oh, you know, we love each other, but will it work? Oh, I guess it will. Yay. And then it's over. What I wanted was a story about how does this impact politics? and culture in a society where this is possible. I was asking questions like, are people who are dead and uploaded to this virtual world, are they allowed to vote, say? They're still, they're, they're dead, their bodies are gone, but their consciousness still clearly exists. They are still alive in the sense that their consciousness is there, it's alive, their personality remains intact, they remember who they are, they have the same memories, the same thoughts, the same feelings as they did before. Are they allowed to vote? Because they do still exist and being there 
that they have an existence that's tied to the real world. They need these servers to continue to exist. They need electricity pumping into these things. They do have an interest in the real world, in the politics of the real world. I imagine people existing in this virtual world would be very interested in what politicians have to say about electrical grids and regulation for the industry that oversees this whole thing. So are they allowed to vote? And if they're not, is there a political movement that's campaigning for the civil and political rights of the dead? Can they own property? Can they run businesses? Are artists and musicians and filmmakers still producing works of art while dead and releasing it to the real world? How has this development affected religious belief? This is something the episode almost explores with one of the characters at first deciding that she's not going to have her brain uploaded to this virtual world when she dies because she's previously lost loved ones who did not have their brains uploaded and she wants to go wherever they went when they died and then she ends up changing her mind out of love for this person she met in this virtual world. But that's the extent of it we get. I wanted to explore have major religions changed their theology on this basis. If it's possible to live forever here on earth in basically a computer world are people going to abandon religion? Will people no longer care about the idea of a heavenly afterlife? Will churches reject this idea? Claim it's the work of evil forces meant to mislead people and pull them away from the truth? How does this work? How does this affect our culture, our society? Do these server farms where all these people's minds are uploaded, have they become a target of terrorists? I imagine if I was a terrorist, that'd be a major target for me. Think about the fear that you could instill by threatening to end someone's afterlife. We reach a stage in human evolution where people can, in a way, live forever. They just upload their brains to this machine and they live forever in paradise. How scary would it be to think of losing that, to think of having a shot at eternal life and then to have it taken away because the power got cut or because someone blew up the computer where your mind was being held? How much is invested in providing security and protection to these facilities? And again, if we're talking about the idea of people in a way living forever, does this affect people's political outlook? Would people hypothetically take more of an interest in things like pollution and climate change if they thought they could live forever? Now that we're thinking I can live forever as long as these machines stay working, am I concerned with what the state of the world is going to be like a hundred, a thousand years from now? Not just because I want to make sure someone is still around to take care of my servers, but also because hypothetically I could be, you know, getting word from the outside world and hearing about what's going on with my descendants. And now these aren't just hypothetical descendants in a distant future, but these are people I could meet someday. Will people choose change their political outlook. And again, getting back to the idea of the fear of these servers being blown up in a terrorist attack, what about war? Would people be less likely to go to war or less likely to support war knowing that these things could be targets in some kind of conflict? And these are just off the top of my head. These, these are just the things I thought of just while watching the episode and sitting here right now giving it a little thought. I'm sure there are so many other things that could be explored with this idea of what happens if we can just upload people's brains and they live forever in virtual reality. And the episode explored none of that. And again, it was fine. It was a good episode of TV. It was a very sweet love story. You're rooting for the characters. It's very nice, but there was so much more they could have done with it. And in a show that's supposed to be all about political commentary and exploring deeper ideas through science fiction, it just didn't accomplish that. And there are other episodes that do this too. And the, the point is some episodes I feel like just squander the cool ideas they came up with and use them to tell less interesting stories. 
Finally, one last criticism. I, I'll just say, and I've hinted that, at this already, I am annoyed that so often the show seems to go back to the same couple ideas. And some of them are interesting, but we just see them being hammered again and again and not getting anything new out of them. The rating system comes back in a lot of episode. Virtual reality comes up again and again. The capability of basically copying a person's consciousness, making a copy of their identity, their, their, the core of their being. And so the real person is walking around the real world, but there's another copy of them existing in a digital world. These ideas we see come up again and again and again. It just seems like there are some interesting ideas, but there isn't an abundance of them. And they just kind of use the same ones over and over. And we don't get a lot out of them. And I realize I'm beating up on the show a lot, but I have to say, I still think it's a good show. For all these criticisms, it's still well worth watching. It's a lot of fun. Even the bad episodes at least will often give you an interesting premise that makes you think, even if the episode ultimately falls flat. And there are some really solid episodes of the show as well. And just a few of my favorites. The episode White Bear, I think, is really great. And White Bear is the episode where a woman wakes up in a house with amnesia. She has no idea who she is, what's going on, how she got there. She goes outside and discovers that something weird is going on. People have gone crazy. A whole bunch of people are running around just murdering each other. It's sort of like a zombie apocalypse thing, except they're not zombies. They're just regular people, but they've gone nuts and they're murdering people and attacking people and so on. While other people are, for some reason, just videotaping the whole thing. And she she has an adventure. She runs around trying to get away from these murderous, crazy people. And there's a whole thing trying to find out what happened, trying to stop it. And then the conclusion of the episode is it's revealed. It's all a setup. This woman is actually a murderer. She took part in the murder of a child. And this is her punishment. She has been sentenced to live this day over and over again. All the people that were chasing after her were actually actors. She was never in any actual danger. Just every day they make her live through this hell where she thinks she's going to be killed and tries to escape and then discovers, no, it was all a setup. This is a fake because you're a horrible person and you did a horrible thing. And now we're going to erase your memory and force you to live the whole thing over the next day. And we find out further, the people are allowed to come and take part in this thing. The people running around videotaping this are basically tourists. They've paid money to go there and take part in this thing and cheer as this woman is punished and humiliated and so on. And totally horrifying premise. And here, a case where we're left feeling ambiguous feelings in a way that's well done. I think you walk away feeling uncomfortable with the whole thing. Because again, you learn that this woman helped murder a child. She did a horrifying, evil thing. But you almost feel some sympathy for her as you realize she, first of all, has no memory now of having done this thing and is doomed to relive this horrible thing over and over and over again, presumably for the rest of her life. And it does raise interesting questions about criminal justice and how we view the role of punishment in a criminal justice system. And again, here's a case where we have an episode of Black Mirror doing what this kind of social science fiction really should do, which is help us really refine our thinking about real world political discussions. Here being about what is the role of our criminal justice system? Do we view criminal justice and do we view punishing criminals as something we do for the purpose of rehabilitation? Are we trying to rehabilitate criminals and get them so that they regret their crimes and can re-enter the world as law-abiding members of society? And in this case, clearly, that's not what this is about. This woman is never going to be rehabilitated. She cannot possibly be rehabilitated. She has her memories erased every day. Is criminal justice about deterrent? Is it about punishing people so that others are afraid to commit crimes? It seems 
like that's plausible here. No one would want to live through this. Is it about vengeance? And I think that's the kind of the scary thing that the episode really explores. I think as a society, we like to think we've evolved beyond the point where we punish people just for the sake of feeling some kind of pleasure at inflicting vengeance on them, making them hurt the way they hurt others, an eye for an eye. I think we're, we're supposed to feel like we've moved beyond that. But the question is, have we really? Do we often sometimes see people reveling in the thought that people who did bad things will now suffer for it? And is that a good way to feel? Again, even if they've done horrible things. And this is something that I think the episode nails really well because they give us here an unsympathetic character, but an unsympathetic character by design as opposed to the blackmail episode where I think it all ends up being muddled and confusing. Here they give us a character that clearly is not supposed to be sympathetic. She murdered a child, but we're still left feeling is what's being done to her truly justice? And it just raises these kinds of questions and does it in a good way in an episode that just throughout the episode, even before the big twist, is just solid and exciting. So that's a great episode worth watching. Another episode that I really enjoy that I think is really solid is the premiere of the series National Anthem. And yes, this is the pig episode. And spoilers and disgusting stuff coming up, so be warned. The premise of this episode is in Britain, a man kidnaps a member of the royal family and says he's going to kill her unless the prime minister has sex with a pig on live TV. And that's the whole episode. The episode is, is politicians and law enforcement saying, can we catch this guy? And if not, are we going to do this? How do we do this? And spoilers, the end of the episode, the man has sex with a pig. We, we don't see any of it, thankfully. But the man has sex with a pig on live TV. And then the end of the episode, we learn that the kidnapper had actually released the hostage a half hour before the whole thing went live. He had no intention of killing her. He's basically a performance artist. And this was all meant to be his commentary on media culture. And he kills himself immediately after this is over. And a great episode where I think it does the comment commentary well, commentary on how we view and absorb television, media in general, the nature of the news cycle. And I think the best part is just the little, really powerful moments of seeing how people react to this. I think the best part of the episode is when you see people, you know, just random extras, just people, just shots of random people all over the country getting ready to tune into this. And as you see their faces change, you see people, oh boy, we're going to see it. And you see they're excited and oh, this is a big event. And then the faces change to horror and then disgust as they realize they're actually watching a man have sex with a pig on live TV and they're just disgusted with what's happening, disgusted with themselves. Just a great powerful moment as we see the transition from this celebrity culture, media culture, where people are just interested in spectacle and excited by taking part in big TV events and just the realization that what's behind that is something horrible and ugly. All of that is great and just those little moments as you see the face has changed. It's another great episode. And again, I think this episode is why, partly for the shock value and partly for what a great episode it was, why the show took off when it first premiered, why people were really talking about it. Because that episode really set the stage for the show and for what was to come. Another episode I really liked, the season four episode, Black Museum. Just because this episode is a lot of fun, 
I can't remember there being any really great political or social messaging in the episode, at least not anything we haven't seen before. It really hits a lot of the same notes we've seen in earlier episodes, but simply because it's just a lot of fun. It's kind of an anthology within an anthology. We get several like mini stories within the episode. They're all great. The framing device of a woman going to visit this creepy museum of weird cursed objects kind of deal is a lot of fun. The guy who runs the museum, who is sort of half main character, half villain, half framing device, is great. The actor who plays him just does a great job of playing this creepy, smarmy, but almost charming character. He's great. And so the episode is is just a lot of fun and fun for the twist at the end, which I actually won't spoil here. But that episode is a lot of fun. Oh, and interesting side note, that episode is actually based on a short story by Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller fame, who actually wanted to play that character of the museum owner. But I guess like scheduling conflicts and stuff, they were already, they had already started putting the episode together before he had a chance to try to audition for the part. So he didn't end up getting to take part in the episode, but it is based on a short story hero about a doctor who becomes addicted to pain. And finally, last episode that I recommend that I really enjoyed, Rachel, Jack, and Ashley 2, which is the Miley Cyrus episode. Miley Cyrus guest stars in the episode. She plays, and I guess this is appropriate if a bit on the nose, a child pop star who goes through a whole thing. Another one I won't spoil here. The episode, I think, is a mixed bag for me in terms of plot. It's kind of an interesting, almost a heist movie at points. It's fun. Again, nothing meaningful here, but it's mostly a fun episode. I just like to put it in my best of list for having a great cover of the Nine Inch Nails song, Head Like a Hole. And I, I've never been a Miley Cyrus fan. I suppose I'm not her target demographic. But I have to say, she kills this song. She does her own sort of pop punk version. She does a couple different versions versions of the song. She does a pop version and then like a punk version at the end. But she does a couple great covers of Head Like a Hole. And the episode is fun just for that. So realize I complain about the show a lot. I have a lot of criticism for it. But there are some great moments on the show. There are some great episodes. And it is well worth checking out if you're into this kind of thing. And I think I'll just close with saying, in the wake of a presidential election, we just finished in the United States. Well, I say just finished. I mean, there's probably going to be several more weeks of vote counting and possibly lawsuits. But basically, the, the, the election's over. We know who won. But anyway, in the wake of that, have to mention the season two episode, The Waldo Moment. And the Waldo moment is about an election taking place in the United Kingdom where a comedian playing a cartoon character basically runs for office. That is to say, the cartoon character himself runs for office. And this episode, I remember, got mixed reviews. I think it was pretty solid. The ending is kind of jarring, but it's a fun episode with this cartoon character saying ridiculous things and competing in an election. And it was mainly a commentary on the nature of politics. There's a lot to say about politics populism and sort of populist type characters who become popular and sometimes run for office on the basis of just criticizing the system and criticizing career politicians, but without really having anything meaningful to say themselves. That's sort of the message here. The idea is that this Waldo cartoon and the comedian voicing him are just there to just snipe at politicians to complain about politics, but don't actually have any ideas themselves, don't have anything meaningful to say. 
And the closing message is, this is terrifying because people like that, these kinds of anti-establishment populist characters are just going to lead us down a dark path. And have to talk about this episode because it involves an election and also because this episode came out in, I believe, 2013, like 2012, 2013. And a few years later, we had Donald Trump running for office and winning the presidency. And a lot of people during the Trump campaign started recalling the Waldo episode and arguing the Waldo moment predicted Donald Trump, arguing Donald Trump was a Waldo type character. He was a populist character and not a cartoon character, but a guy who had become popular by being on TV, who ran for office mainly on the platform of the existing political system sucks, career politicians are bad, drain the swamp and all of that, with the criticism that he actually doesn't have a lot to say or contribute himself. He doesn't have any ideas himself beyond the system is bad and politicians suck. And so you had a lot of people recalling the Waldo moment and saying, you know, the Black Mirror people are really prescient. They foresaw Donald Trump. I'll leave it to everybody to decide for themselves how accurate that is. But if you're interested in U.S. politics, if you've been following the presidential race, go back and watch the Waldo episode and decide for yourself what does this episode have to say about actual present day politics. And so I think I'll end on that. Check out all of those episodes. Again, even the bad ones have their good moments. It's a really solid show, worth watching, great ideas, interesting premises. Just wish they did more with them sometimes, but still worth watching. Check it out. And thank you. And side rant. This time, I'd like to just rant a little bit more about that episode, Men Against Fire, and talk about what bugged me about the episode. And this is perhaps the only episode that I really sort of actively dislike. Even all those other episodes I criticize, I can find positive things to say about them. This is the only one I really dislike. And the reason is I was bothered by its portrayal of genocide and how human beings can become dehumanized and the targets of genocide. And I think a lot of fiction does this. I think a lot of shows that touch on the idea of genocide and dehumanization of victims, I think the writers are trying to do a positive thing, portray this horrible thing and portray it in an impactful, meaningful way. But I think ultimately stuff like this episode, if anything obscure the horror of genocide. And in, in this case, what I'm thinking is when we discover that some state, some government, I don't think it's ever established what country or what government is doing this, but when we discover that the state in this episode is carrying out genocide and is tricking its soldiers into carry out this genocide, we get the accurate piece that this is being carried out by dehumanizing the victims, by convincing the soldiers that are carrying this out that they're fighting literal monsters. So that's accurate. This is something that happens in the real world when genocides occur. The a genocide is usually preceded with a government, the perpetrators, dehumanizing the victims, portraying the victims as vermin, as monsters, as mutants, as less than human. This certainly happens, and I think that's what the episode is trying to communicate. But it communicates it in, again, a way that I think obscures the truth. What we learn is that the soldiers are really just being brainwashed. They have a chip in their head that makes them literally see the people they're killing as monsters. And the fact is that's not the real world. In the real world, genocide is carried out by people who see clearly what they're doing. And I think that's something that's important to remember. I don't, I think it's dangerous to simply say genocide happens when people are dehumanized and then the perpetrators don't really see what they're doing or don't realize what they, they're doing. Dehumanization occurs, but people know what they're doing. They see the actual human faces of the people they're killing. 
During the Holocaust, the Germans and Poles and French in occupied territory who informed on their Jewish neighbors, who told Nazi soldiers where to find Jewish people, they didn't have microchips in their head. The soldiers who forced people onto trains and into gas chambers didn't see literal mutants. They saw human beings. They had arguably been brainwashed, in a sense, by a society, by government propaganda that were telling them the Jews were subhuman and a threat to their race and so on. There was propaganda and brainwashing going on, but there were no microchips. There was no sci-fi technology. These were human beings making a decision to murder other human beings. And I think Men Against Fire obscures that. It sort of sends the message that the people who carry out these kinds of atrocities have sort of been brainwashed. And that's it. And it sort of, to some degree, lets them off the hook. And again, I think we should be concerned with how propaganda works, how brainwashing can occur to some degree, how a state can bring ordinary people to a point where they are willing to commit genocide, where they are willing to murder their fellow human beings. We should be concerned with how the state perpetrates that. We also shouldn't be letting the people who undertake these things off the hook or just say brainwashing, that's it. And again, I think a lot of sci-fi that touches on subjects like this does similar stuff. It happens in the, the novel Ender's Game as well, where the main character is basically tricked into committing genocide. And so I'm glad to see stories exploring these kinds of ideas, talking about genocide, the danger of dehumanizing the other, dehumanizing human beings, presenting them as something less than human, and how that contributes to political atrocities, something we should be very concerned with in a post-Holocaust world, something we should be very concerned with in a world where we see things like today, like what the Chinese are doing to the Uyghurs. It's something we should be concerned with. It's something I want to see fiction exploring but not in this way. Sci-fi writers don't portray genocide as something that's carried out by brainwashed robots who don't realize what they're doing. People know what they're doing when they undertake these things. The question is, why do they do them anyway? That's what should be explored. And as a final side note, if this subject is of interest to you, why do seemingly normal human beings who don't have microchips in their head, who haven't been brainwashed, why do such people sometimes help carry out genocide? Read a book by the historian Christopher Browning called Ordinary Men. Ordinary Men is about a Nazi military police battalion and the role they played in the Holocaust, and it is a great book and specifically an exploration of this question. Why do ordinary men, seemingly normal, sane people, freely, voluntarily choose to take part in something like genocide? Well worth a read. And so that's it for me. I'm sorry to sort of end on a depressing down note. But I really wanted to get that off my chest about Met Against Fire and how we talk about genocide. So I guess that's my closing thought for the day. Thank you. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. As always, please be in touch. Please let me know what you like, what you don't like about the show, suggestions for future episodes. Please consider reviewing and subscribing. And you can be in touch with me on social media, on Twitter, at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook, at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram, at social underscore sci underscore fi, and you can email me at socialsciencefictionshow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. New episode every Tuesday. See you then.